Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So let us pray. Glorious Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts in order that we might know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Years and years ago, when I was working in Boston and commuting in with a friend of mine named Chuck, uh, since we rode the train into Boston, I would read oftentimes. And at one point, I was reading Thomas Akempis. And I remember him talking a lot there in that book about words and about silence and trying to uh, use silence as a way to understand what words we would say. I was reminded a little bit of uh, what we find in Psalm 39, where it says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So I decided one day that I was not going to speak. I was going to instead be aware of the things I would have said so that I could gain a greater awareness of just how often I used my tongue and my words to be sarcastic, well, not sarcastic, well, always sarcastic, but harmful. How many times I would have said things that would have hurt people. So I tried to be aware of this. And part of the collateral damage of this exercise for myself is that it drove my friend Chuck completely insane. I mean, he wanted to have a conversation with me in the car before we got to the train. He wanted to have another, you know, more conversation with me on the train, after the train, as we walked to the office, and then at various points he would come into my office. Finally, at lunchtime, he's like, will you stop it? Talk to me. I drove him nuts. It wasn't about him, though, but it was about trying to recognize just how much sin was in my heart that had came out through my mouth. This morning we're talking about sinful speech, the sins of the tongue. The big idea this morning is that the word replaces our sinful words with life-giving words. We're going to do this in four parts this morning, but one of the parts is, yay, very small. So, The first part I want us to 
contemplate this morning is that speech that seeks to harm others is in fact sinful. That's yeah, I'm defining sinful speech as that which harms others. But we have to start with the recognition that words are essential to most of our lives. They're essential to our marriages. Words are essential to our friendships. Chuck was very annoyed because there were no words that morning. Words are essential to parenting, pastoring, work, politics. Words, words, words are everywhere. Words are, in fact, God's gift to us. They are His gift given to us to express what is happening in our souls, to express, or actually to have thoughts in our minds, to express what's going on in our world, to comprehend and somehow express the reality of who God is and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. If we do not have words, we can do none of these things. And we are all the poorer for it. So words are a gift from God, but something happened in the disobedience of Adam. We fell. We became sinners. And as a result of that, we tend to abuse all of God's gifts, and that includes words. It's no surprise that the book of Proverbs is filled, not just with sex and money, talking about speech. That's one of the the main themes that runs through this book of instruction for the young men of Israel, how to speak and how not to speak. What to do with words and what not to do with words. Because it recognizes that the words can either give life or bring death. For instance, Proverbs 10 Verse 18 and 19, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. That's one of the, that that last verse there, 19, was one of the ones I memorized just because I knew that I speak way too much, and therefore transgression is not lacking. Proverbs 10, verse 11, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so Scripture recognizes the power of the tongue, not just here in Proverbs, but as we read from James uh, chapter 3 this morning, the power of the tongue, both to praise God, but unfortunately to destroy other people, to curse those who have been made in His image. And so Paul here in this text in Colossians uh, gives us three words or three phrases that are to define some of the sinful speech, not all sinful speech. And the first of these is slander. It's actually the word blaspheme. When you look in the Greek. This is from this is a noun, but it's from the verb to speak harm or to speak or to make false accusations. To call someone something that they are not. To say they have done sinful things that they have not done. That is slander. It can be used and it is used in the New Testament for speaking harm either toward God or toward those people who are made in His image. 
And so blasphemy, you can speak blasphemy against me, and I can speak blasphemy against you by declaring that you have done particular things that you haven't in order to undermine you, in order to hurt you, in order to to steal your place and presence within the community. That's often what slander does. It's to destroy a person's reputation, to make others look down upon them by speaking things that is not true. So it's all about reputation, whether it's God's reputation and the person who blasphemes is trying to destroy God's reputation or whether it's your reputation and whether or not someone is trying to destroy it by false accusation, slander. The second is obscene talk. Basically, to say foul things, things that are abusive or obscene. So often we kind of take this, I think, in a, in a far too narrow and, and, and simplistic way. We tend to think of this as just being a potty mouth, as someone who, who cusses, swears. We, we think of George Carlin and his famous skit on the, the seven words you can't say on TV. We think that that's what this is really referring to, and I think there, there, there is an aspect of it that's true, but I don't think that's his point. Paul is not concerned about which slang term you use for different bodily functions. That's not the point. The point, particularly within the context of the community and everything else that we've seen here, is are things that destroy the community and whether or not you hit your, hit your thumb with a hammer and say a S word or an F word. That's not the point. The point is coarse language or even uncoarse language that is used to defame another It's not about slang, it's about abuse. It's about using a derogatory term for someone who is made in the image of God and therefore has dignity. It is about an attack upon the dignity of a human being. That's really, I think, the core of this. We do live in an increasingly coarse society. And now the ways in which we assault people have gone from things like calling someone a jerk or a moron or an idiot into far worse things. And we should lament that. And we should not participate in that. I remember when I was growing up, the some of you who are old like me might remember this, the show Alice. And her co-worker at Mel's Diner, Flo, who would say, kiss my grits. And for the life of me, I don't know what in the world that means. In fact, that's probably why the censors let it go by, because it was essentially a nonsense saying, but that's what it does. That's what it was. It was an attempt to berate another human being. And so to use even a phrase like that would be an example of the obscene talk that Paul is discussing here. The third main one that he mentions is lie or deceive. And the first part of that word should be familiar, pseudo. Someone who is a pseudo-intellectual is a fake intellectual. The falseness, pseudo-leather, fake leather. Who wants to wear that? 
Um, well, I guess if you're one of the PETA people, you do. But uh, you don't want to be mistaken, actually, for having real leather if you're a PETA person. So I guess you wouldn't wear pseudo-leather. But nonetheless, this is the idea. It's something that is false. Now, it's not interesting to me that, that some people have used truthfulness to somehow say that fiction is inappropriate, that Christians shouldn't be uh, engaged in the profession of acting because there's an intent to deceive. But I think everyone knows that the actor is acting. <laughs> there's no real deception involved there. I don't think anyone really believes that William Shatner is uh, James T. Kirk. Okay? I think everyone understands there's a difference there. Um, that's not what this is, even though some people try to push it to that level. That's really not what we need to talk about with regard to this. doesn't rule out jokes either. Okay? The point of the lie is to deceive those who deserve the truth and either to protect yourself from consequences of your own actions or to gain an advantage by lying about them. Dr. Gregory House famously said, everybody lies. And by that, he didn't mean that everybody lies all the time, but that lying, deceit, is prevalent among human beings, and everyone at some point does it. You have. I know you have. I have. We live in a culture in which lying is uh, pretty common. People lie on their taxes. They lie on their resumes. I remember watching a, a 2020 special, and you know, one of those. Uh, this is years ago, but it was one of those like hidden camera things. People on their first dates, lying. <laughs> it's like they never expected to ever see this person again, kind of thing. I don't know what it was, but they're they're trying to make themselves look better through through deceit. You know, giving themselves a better job. It's just basically it's George Costanza on steroids. People really do this. People really lie a lot. There have been biographical books that have been lies. Remember, I can't remember the author, but Oprah, there was the big scandal. Oprah's book of the month, it became one of the most popular books, and it turned out the author had made it all up, but said it was their life story. Uh, same thing in the Christian realm. I remember Cornerstone Magazine had exposed Mike Warnke for making up much of his famous supposed pseudo-biography at this point, The Satan Seller. Lies. Paul's saying that these things are not to have a place among us. And he's, he's merely speaking consistently with the Old Testament. For instance, Exodus 23, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Talking about really hurting somebody. You're in court lying so that that person will be experience consequences of a crime they have not committed. Psalm 34, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So this is a common theme throughout the Scriptures that we must pay attention to. And the reason why these, these sins are so sinful, why Paul would care about this, is because fundamentally they are a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Would you, would you tell lies to yourself to do harm to yourself? Do you 
normally berate yourself and think that's a good thing? It's a fundamental failure to love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's why Paul is going after them in this vice list. And so our speech is sinful when we use words to harm or to to degrade another person because they are made in the image of God. Secondly, sinful speech reveals a heart that's struggling with sin. Words are merely the flowers of what's in our heart. And what's in our heart might be a, a nice, beautiful flower, or it might be a weed. Sinful speech is the bloom of a weed that's visible for others to see. And all they do is they reveal the remaining sin within the human heart. As Sinclair Ferguson notes, the tongue unveils the deep and often unruly inconsistencies of our hearts. And so words reveal the the tumult within ourselves, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit that continues to go on. It reveals how much we, they reveal how much we still need Christ to sanctify us. Paul says here, when he said, particularly about lying, do not lie to one another. Now, that doesn't mean you can lie to non-Christians. That's not what Paul's getting at. But he's, he's saying, especially to one another. This idea, again, that our sinful speech wars against the peace of the communities in which we live. If I lie to my wife, I'm, I'm warring against the peace of our family. If I slander one of you, I'm warring against the peace of this congregation. The peace of the communities in which we live. Paul builds on that. Goes into it a little more deeply in Ephesians chapter 4, which is the uh, sort of the parallel letter here. They were sent out at about the same time, so he had a lot of the same things on his mind. He goes into a little more deep uh, detail. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So not, we're not just part of a community, but we are all part of the body of Christ, and therefore we should not be deceiving one another, but rather we should be speaking the truth to one another. He continues, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so Paul is... is not just giving them what not to do, but he's also giving them what to do, the direction in which their words should begin to move, what it means to use words that give life, be a fountain of life, as it talks about in Ephesians, uh, sorry, in Proverbs. He gives them a clue to that that we'll get back to. But there's a recognition here from Ephesians that life-giving speech is formed in community and it builds community. In other words, we need each other. 
We need each other to help us see the ways in which our own speech is sinful. We need one another to correct and to instruct. And so one of the things that God has given us in the gospel is the body of Christ. And that our sanctification does not take place like sort of I was doing, cutting my brother off. Okay, my brother Chuck from my speech. But what what happens is our sanctification takes place within the context of the body of Christ. It takes place within the context of community. It's a gift of God. Because we can't see all of our sin. And so we need a a loving brother or sister to come and and to gently expose that so that we can see it, so that we can repent of it. As I think it was uh, Paul Tripp mentioned in a in a different context, your, your, your sanctification is a community project. It's not a self-improvement project, which is how we tend to, to view this, that, that somehow it's just me and God, and that's it. But really, your life change, you need the community of God's people to really change, to really see and understand your sin, your struggle. And it is a great struggle. Our sinful speech just reveals that our hearts, there's still room, uh, there's still places where Christ needs to reign in our hearts. Why do we commit these particular sins? Well, there's a lot of reasons why we might commit these particular sins. One of them is pride. We lie about ourselves to make ourselves look better to other people. That's about pride. We lie usually negatively about other people in order to make them look not so good so that we can look better. Pride. That's the reason we don't confess our sins to one another. Pride. And so we we present an image of ourselves that is not actually accurate, as though we're not struggling with things. Now, that doesn't mean you have to tell everybody everything you struggle with, but there should be people that know where you're struggling. And perhaps you should know where they are struggling. So as you can, we can do what James says uh, in, you know, in chapter 5 of his letter, to pray for one another. Not only that, but self-protection, which is rooted in pride. You know, we, we don't want to... Uh, look bad in front of other people, and, and if someone is speaking the truth about perhaps our sin, one of the things that we tend to do is try to deflect that, and so we accuse someone else of something. You know, we don't want to look bad, so let's, let's move the attention, the spotlight onto somebody else, and we'll, we'll think up or perhaps even mention something given in confidence about the other person. Because we don't want the heat of the truth. We can deflect or avoid our guilt shame through the way in which we speak. Another problem within our hearts is it can be hatred or bitterness. You know, that's why it's right on the, the tail end of this. Slander is sort of a, you only slander people you don't like, right? Do you slander your best buddy? It's connected with the root of anger and hatred. So these, these, sins, these, these sins are often connected with anger and hatred. And so part of what I'm trying to say 
is that we need to repent not just of our words, but we do need to do that, but also the sins in our hearts that drive the words of our pride, of our self-protection, of our bitterness, our anger, whatever it may be. Which means that we need to bring those words back to God in prayer. Why would I say this to harm that person? Beginning to examine our motives. And perhaps with a friend as well. A wise friend. Trace them back to, the, to your heart so that you can see the mess that's still there. The mess that Christ can then deal with. And so our sinful speech isn't the real problem. The real problem are hearts struggling with sin that need His grace. And here's some good news for you. The Word bore the guilt of our words. Paul doesn't talk about Jesus as the Word. That's a John thing. I'm stealing from John. Because I, I see the appropriateness of this. This title for Jesus helps, us, helps me put things in perspective. The Word Himself, who only speaks truthfully, had His words twisted by wicked men. These wicked men spoke false words or blasphemy against Him. See, first, well, they blasphemed against Him by accusing Him of blasphemy. They spoke to harm Him. False witnesses. Malicious witnesses. And so that took place as Jesus had His trial, which we, we talk about this week. He was put on trial for His words, which were only true. He was found guilty because of false words that were placed into His mouth by wicked men. But it's not just that Jesus was unjustly tried and condemned, but we see, as Paul talks about in Colossians 1, His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so there was far more going on there than a trial, but He was standing in our place. He was receiving the condemnation we deserved for the words we speak, among many other things. And so when He dies upon the cross for sinners, He dies in part for their sinful speech, for their words of blasphemy, for their words of slander, for their words of obscene speech and abusive language, for their deceit, for their gossip. All of these sins that we do with our tongues, as well as the sins in our hearts that drive them. He went to the cross for these things. He died for our sinful speech, not just as a result of sinful speech. And so this ought to show us the gravity of that speech, but it also shows us the sufficiency of God's grace in Jesus Christ to overcome the guilt and shame of that speech. And so before we can begin to have life-giving speech, we must be forgiven for the sinful speech. Which leads us to the fourth part. The last part. 
that same word enables us to speak new words, life-giving words, to be a fountain of life. Having died for us who speak sinfully, Christ now works in us by the Holy Spirit to sanctify our speech. Now Paul puts, you know, in this particular context, he's putting the responsibility on us. But we we need to remember uh, Philippians chapter 2 where it says, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the question is, well, why? Then he says, because God is at work in you to will and work according to his purposes. And so we are to be responsible, but the only reason we are responsible is because God is first working in us so that we will write things and therefore do write things. And so in this part, in this passage, Paul is stressing our our responsibility, our end of this thing, but we have to remember that it is God who works in us first so that we can do that stuff, okay? So Paul says, and speaking of our responsibility, um, reminding them that they have put off the old self. In other words, God has given us a new heart a new identity. And that new heart and that new identity will speak new words, better words than the old man spoke. And so he says, put them all away. We're to begin speaking in light of our new union with Christ. We are to treat the old ways of speech as the garbage that they are and begin to toss them away through repentance and faith. Speaking about this, Basil the Great said, turning away from all wickedness means keeping our tongue in check, restraining our anger, suppressing evil desires, and avoiding all gossip, lying, and swearing. And so for Basil the Great, a a good part of our sanctification is what we do with our tongue and our lips the sounds we make, the words we speak. This fellow Cappadocian, Gregory of Nazianzus, which I probably mispronounced, and I will will be gently corrected later, said that, uh, must your tongue rule at any cost, or can you not restrain the birth pang of your speech? Basically, Do you lack so much self-control that you can't see that a bad thing is about to come out of your mouth and control it? Can you not hold your tongue when you know it's going to speak sinfully? We struggle with that. We do. And so therefore, we are to put that guard. That's part of why in James 3, uh, sorry, James 1, it says, Remember we talked about slow to be angry? He also said, be quick to hear, slow to speak. Watch those words before they come out of your mouth. Don't just have it, you know, put a, like, you know, a lot of the radio stations will put the three-second delay on because they might have someone on the radio who's, who says something inappropriate so they can bleep it out. You need to have a three- or ten-second delay between your brain and your lips 
so that you catch those things in, in self-edit instead of having some guy walking around behind you with a beep, okay? <laughs> beeping out your slander, beeping out your gossip, whatever that, you know, whatever it might be that you tend to struggle with, okay? Self-edit. Self-correct. It's a, pro, it's a thing that you learn to do. It's, it's cultivated by the Spirit. It's called self-control. And James talks about it. Paul talks about it. We have to put them away. Because, we've put, uh, because we have put off the old self and we are being renewed. We've put on the new man and we are being renewed into what? As we've talked about before, we're being renewed into the image of God. Okay, so Paul brings this back into this just as James brought the image of God into chapter 3 of his letter. When he says, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he's saying it shouldn't be that we do both of those things. We should only do one of those. We should praise God and bless His people. And so we need part of how we need to put away this old stuff is remembering not just who we are, but who they are. The dignity they have as one made in the image of God. We affirm them. We affirm them in as much as they reflect the glory and character of God. We affirm them in as much as they speak the truth. We affirm people instead of attacking people. But not only do we affirm, but we also call others to image God, which means, as Paul talks about in chapter 1 of Colossians, we correct and we instruct and so being, you know, life-giving words are not just happy words. Sometimes they're difficult words. But they're spoken so that the other person can repent of their sin and begin to know how they should do something. So there's, there's correction and instruction that should be going on. And, and sometimes that is not um, pleasant. It's difficult. Sort of like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is Aslan safe? No. But he's good. And so if your words are good, it does not mean that they're always going to be safe. They are a threat to people who are sinning. We have to remember that. So don't lie by pretending everyone's all okay. okay. Um, one of my favorite ironic pieces in, in movie history is, I wasn't going to do this, um, Goodwill Hunting, which if you don't like bad language, don't see the movie. Um, there's one, he, he's purposely trying to upset the, the character played by Robin Williams, the psychiatrist. And he, he finally gets under his skin because he observes what's going around and he uses his high intellect to find the weak spot and he hits it. And, and the, the, the psychiatrist is ready to kill him and basically has him by the throat up against the bookcase, sort of like this. And what you see right here is the classic book, 
I'm okay, you're okay. <laughs> Nobody in that room was okay. Right. And so being a life-giving fountain with your words does not mean you pretend everything is okay. It means sometimes you have to speak the hard truth. It does not mean that you put someone up against the wall with your hands. That's a different story. Okay? Um, so we're being renewed so that we can correct, we can instruct, we can encourage and affirm. Just as Christ, who was the truth, he spoke the truth, however unpleasant, to pursue repentance. We're going to see in a little bit in Colossians 3 here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Anybody like to be admonished? Please let me see all the hands. No, it's hard work, but that's part of what it means to speak wisdom and life to people at times. And so as, as Christ the Word dwells in us, we begin to speak His words, it says here, to one another. We begin to not just think His thoughts after Him, but speak His words after Him, but speak them to one another as well as ourselves. So, Christ, who was over all things, as Paul talks about earlier in this letter, is also supreme over our words. He has authority over them. And He judges those who use words to destroy people or to slander God. And so our words are so dangerous because they're produced by hearts that are so messed up by sin. And so we need to be rescued by Christ who gives us new hearts so that we can have new words. And as said, life-giving words are not always pleasant words. Sometimes we have to correct people so they can repent and be restored to community. But we need community we need family, we need church to correct us so that we can learn to build up others with our words after so many years of tearing people down. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a weekend. It doesn't happen in a year. It happens over the course of a lifetime. And we need to bear with one another as that process takes place showing each other mercy and love in the context when we do this. Let's pray. Father, we come before You in part as sinners, recognizing that we too often err with our tongues, that our words often speak in ways that are unjust, and unrighteous. But we also, those who come in Christ, come before You as saints, having been forgiven the guilt of our sinful speech, and having received the righteousness of Christ's obedient speech. But we come in need of change in need of You being at work to sanctify our speech, which means that we need You to sanctify our hearts.
And so we ask that you would do that. Because of Christ. Because He has loved us and given Himself for us. Because You Yourself have chosen us before the creation of the world in love to adopt us as Your children and Your people. And so make us like You. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.